0: Hello, and welcome to Behind the Walls of the World Psychiatric Hospitals. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Gallup, and today we have a slightly different format. We're going to go a little off script. Um, We are transitioning between hospitals, so we just finished the six-part series on Oregon State Hospital in Salem. And next week, we're going to begin talking about a brand new hospital, on the East Coast. So I'm really excited about that one. Um, But for now, I thought we would start, I got some questions this week from some listeners about the series on Oregon State Hospital and about what my work as a psychologist is like at a state hospital. I'm happy to answer those questions. And hopefully you'll get some of the answers that you've been looking for. So um, come on in and make ourselves comfortable as we go behind the walls of what it's like to be at a as a what it's like to be a psychologist at St. Hospital. So, first of all, thank you to Samira and Mandy for the questions that I'll be answering today. Um, they they fall into the two categories basically. The the first categories basically questions about Oregon State Hospital itself in the series we just finished. Um, The next is questions about what it's like to be a psychologist at a state hospital. So let's begin by looking at Mandy's first question about Oregon State Hospital. Uh, She mentioned that she was interested in knowing that a lot of local folks around the Salem area are aware of the tunnels under the hospital and that there's this sort of lore to them and you know, people ask about them a lot. Um, she says she grew up in Eugene and didn't know anything about the hospital. And she wonders, well, why doesn't more of the state know about this hospital? And that's a great question, Vandy. My initial thought is to say that often these types of institutions are highly stigmatized. Anytime that you mix mental illness, especially severe and persistent mental illness, like schizophrenia spectrum disorders, or bipolar disorder, personality disorders, et cetera, and you mix them sometimes with criminality, um, that really is an intersection of our most marginalized folks. Um, I often think about the patients at psychiatric hospitals are often the people that society wants to forget about. These are the folks that it's easier if we don't see them generally speaking. And so that's probably the reason why we don't hear a lot about it is because ugh, people don't want to talk about it. And so it's a really good question that you bring up. I wish more people knew about it. That's part of the reason why I started this podcast, not only because of my own fascination with these these hospitals, but also because there's information about them that I think people need to know. And There's still – we're sort of getting to a point now today where um, mental illness is better understood, but there's still a stigma attached to it. We still have people who think that only the, quote, crazy people need to go to therapy or need to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist. And that's – that's just not true. Sorry, my cat was (laughs) coming to say hello, too. She wanted to give her two cents. And so – Really, we have, uh, it's a long ongoing problem where we're continuing to figure out well, what do we do with mental health treatment today? Um, we, Um, Like I mentioned, we're starting to better understand it. It's starting to be talked about in the open more often. But the reason that a lot of people don't talk about these old hospitals, um, especially back then, was because that was where you dropped people off and forgot about them. You know, if somebody was... Uh, how do I want to say outside of the traditional mold, if they uh, were somewhat different, then it was easier to send them off somewhere where you didn't have to think about them and didn't have to see them. And hopefully they got, they would get taken care of and they would come back as quote normal. So, you know, really when we're talking about the early history of Oregon State Hospital, um, that was sort of the culture that, was taking place. These were the people that got shunned. So why don't more people talk about it? Um, It's been a source of shame for a lot of people for a long, long time. And I hope to bring some, some light to the subject. I hope to bring some humanity to it. I hope to debunk some myths about what hospitals are like, um, the patients that go there. One of the things that has continuously surprised me about my work in psychiatric hospitals is that these are, this could be anybody that I grew up with. <laughs> the The patients could be anyone's father or anyone's uncle or anyone's brother. And they are, they are somebody's brother. They are somebody's son. They are somebody's father, um, and just the humanity of it all always humbles me. Um, I remember one of the hospitals where I worked, there was a surgeon who was a, ended up being a patient at the hospital. And it, it never fails to surprise me that um, people who are high functioning in society can still struggle with mental illness. They do struggle with mental illness and sometimes they require a higher level of care. And that's what these state hospitals offer. Um, Unlike... The period of time that I was just talking about with Oregon State Hospital, um, in that period, not everybody had a forensic reason to be at the hospital. So in other words, sometimes people, uh, you might remember, we talked about voluntary commitments to the hospital that were either the individual or the family would commit uh, the person to the hospital, or somebody would commit be showing signs of what we now call psychosis or some, it'd be showing signs of a mental disorder and the courts would say, hey, you need to go here. They they didn't necessarily have to commit a crime in order to end up at the hospital. Um, Today, with most state hospitals, it's primarily forensic in nature. So somebody has been charged with a crime, they may be pre-sentenced. So those folks are Judged um, incompetent to stand trial, so I've worked with those category of folks. Um, There are folks that I work with who are post adjudication, meaning that they're serving their their sentence at the hospital instead of serving their sentence in prison. Um, I've worked with mentally disordered offenders, um, so folks who are who were just coming from prison and who aren't safe to be released back into the community. Um, and then uh, sprinkled more uh, uh, conservatively around the hospitals are a handful of conserved folks who aren't necessarily there for forensic reasons, although often they have committed crimes in the past, um, but not necessarily, um, that's not necessarily the reason that brings them to the hospital at the current time. So all in all, that's kind of a long answer to that question, Mandy. I hope that helps. Um, we. The reason why, and this is probably true, not just for Oregon, but for other states as well, is because um, we we do try to put patients from the, the psychiatric hospitals just sort of off to the side. They, like I mentioned, they're an easy group to forget about. All right. Um, another question. Did the hospital specialize in or favor any types of certain, any certain type of mental illness Did it more for change in the hospital's history, maybe depending on its leadership? And the answer is... Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. Not really. So traditionally, at the beginning of, if we go back to like the first... The first and second episodes of this series, we see at the beginning of Oregon State Hospital history, but around the 1880s um, to the turn of the 20th century, a lot of the reasons that people were brought to the hospital were for uh, symptoms like mania. They had uh, diagnoses of dementia or epilepsy. They were feeble minded, which today we would call uh, intellectual disability or a learning disorder, or, or maybe a developmental disorder as well. Um, syphilis also brought a lot of people to the hospital. And so generally we saw a lot of those sort of diagnoses when they were coming in. Also in that time period, you may remember from the early uh, episodes of this series, they not only gave the patient upon their admission a diagnosis, but there also was a cause of the insanity. And so that's something that we definitely don't do today. We don't say, Oh, you have schizophrenia because, of genetics. That's not something that we do upon admission there. I think part of the reason is because we are learning more and more about these mental health disorders. And um, the more that we know, the more that we realize we don't know necessarily or can't pinpoint what caused the mental health disorder. Sometimes it's just impossible to say, you know, it's a sort of chicken or the egg thing. Well, did this person start having psychotic symptoms and then start using drugs? Or did the drugs cause the psychotic symptoms? And it's impossible to say. So all that to say that around the time that Oregon State Hospital opened, as I mentioned, we had uh, these particular disorders. As uh, psychiatry and psychology began to develop, we had a better understanding of what these disorders were, what the symptoms looked like. And so I wouldn't say that the hospital specialized or favored any type of mental illness, but they did sort of start to fall in line and people started noticing patterns, right? And so we were able to take a lot of these Uh, initial symptoms, we recognized that epilepsy wasn't necessarily a mental illness per se, it was a physical illness. So you may remember that uh, around 1907, um, in Oregon, particularly the Fairview Hospital opened, it was initially called the Oregon Institute for the Feeble-Minded. And so the portion of the population uh, of Oregon State Hospital, I guess it was still the insane asylum at that time, had diagnoses of epilepsy and or being feeble-minded. So a lot of those folks ended up transferring to Fairview Hospital, uh, leaving more room for patients who had uh, mania, dementia, uh, substance abuse disorders, and what was eventually called dementia praecox. So as we started to get to know uh, more about and understand these disorders, Uh, As I mentioned, we got to see the patterns and the symptoms, and we were able to to make sense of, uh, okay, this looks like dementia praecox. Okay, this looks like um, mania and what we now call bipolar disorder. So by the turn of the century, dementia praecox, the the word praecox essentially means premature dementia. And I actually, I kind of like that phrasing because... Um, that's what we now call schizophrenia and schizophrenia really does have a strong cognitive aspect of the disorder where the, the cognitive aspects of the, the, the person um, start to deteriorate. And so there's a lot, a lot of um, uh, deficits. The person starts to have, they start having difficulties concentrating, they start having difficulties with memory and that only gets worse as the person begins to age. I actually, a couple of years ago, got to see the MRI of a patient with pretty severe schizophrenia, and there was not much left of his brain. Uh, It really was one of the saddest, saddest things that I've ever seen. Um, If you've ever looked at a picture of a healthy brain, we have these sort of spaces in the middle called ventricles. And um, and surrounding the ventricles are where the healthy brain tissue is. And this person's ventricles were so large that the portions of the healthy brain that were left were just nearly depleted. It was uh, absolutely nightmarish. And so that shows that there really is a cognitive deterioration of the disorder. So the term dementia praecox really isn't that far from reality. Um. debating whether or not to go off on this buddy trail. I love talking about these mental health disorders and I it's probably a good thing that I'm in the, the right line of work. Um, schizophrenia spectrum disorders have always fascinated me. And we now call them uh, schizophrenia spectrum because there really is a range. Uh, we have people, I, I work with folks who have pretty mild symptoms of schizophrenia, but it's schizophrenia nonetheless, right? They meet all the criteria from the DSM. And then I have folks who are on the complete other side where their schizophrenia and their symptoms is so severe that it impairs every aspect of their life. And so um, you may know, or you may not know if you're not in the in the field. Around 2013, the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of mental disorders came up with the the fifth edition that was around 2013. And then just this last year in 2022, they revised that. So now we're working with the DSM-5 TR text revision. So we just came out with the most updated diagnostic uh, material. And we, it, it's really nice to have some some updated material. It's surprising how quickly, even in nine years, you know, almost 10 years, how outdated some things can be. So uh, not a lot changed in reference to schizophrenia, but I want to clear up a couple of misconceptions that a lot of people do have about this disorder and that I'll admit I was guilty of having as well before I Uh, began studying psychology. So one of the common myths that a lot of people have about schizophrenia is they understand it like um, what used to be called multiple personality disorder. When that's really, they are two different disorders. Schizophrenia and what we now call dissociative identity disorder or DID are in two completely different parts of the DSM. So schizophrenia obviously falls in the schizophrenia spectrum and other psychotic disorders section, whereas dissociative identity disorder, what we used to call multiple personality disorder, that lives in the trauma section. And so they have two completely different etiologies or reasons why they why they occur. Um, both, I firmly believe, are rooted in trauma. Um, But schizophrenia also has a really strong genetic component to it that we can't overlook. So schizophrenia, if it's so if it's not somebody, you know, talking to the different personalities of themselves, what actually is it? So when we talk about schizophrenia, and there are different types of psychotic disorders related to schizophrenia. So for this, I'm just going to be focusing on just straight-up schizophrenia, There are what we call positive symptoms and negative symptoms. Positive symptoms isn't like positive in the sense of good. It means something that's added. So if we're talking about somebody who doesn't have schizophrenia, positive means something that's added on that somebody who doesn't have it wouldn't have. Does that make sense? (laughs) It's kind of difficult to explain. So a good example would be I, for instance, don't have schizophrenia. However, um, if I were to hear auditory hallucinations, that would be something added. Right. So that would be something that I don't normally experience. Um, I have many patients who hear voices. Uh, if somebody hears, excuse me, if somebody sees visual hallucinations, that would be something added that I don't have. If somebody has paranoid beliefs that they are being followed, watched, stolen from, uh, persecuted, et cetera, that's something added that I don't have. Um, if somebody believes they are a millionaire, they have a Malibu beach mansion, uh, when really they've been homeless for years, (laughs) that's something that's added that I don't have. So that's just one example uh, of positive symptoms, negative symptoms. Similarly, if I'm using myself as an example, um, negative symptoms are something that are not present, that should be present. So an example of that would be somebody with, it's actually very, very common to see in my patients with schizophrenia, um, what we call avolition—they just—it's really sort of an apathy. They don't want to get up in the morning. They don't want to go to to their groups. They don't want to do this, that, or the the other thing. Um, uh, Anhedonia—there's a complete loss of interest in the things that they used to care about. So that's those are things that should be there that are not. Um, often, what we also see in schizophrenia patients is a complete lack of emotion on their face. We call it a flat affect. And if somebody's presenting with a flat affect, they're not showing emotions. Most of us who don't have schizophrenia naturally show emotions on our face. So that's something that's not there that should be there. I I hope I made that clear. So uh, schizophrenia really, when, when I see it most in my patients, I see a Couple of common patterns. I see a lot of patients exhibiting those negative symptoms that I mentioned earlier. So often, the way that looks like is they'll spend all day, every day, in their room. Uh, they'll sleep all day long. They won't be engaged with people. They won't talk to staff. They won't stop talk to peers. Uh, they'll get up for medications. They'll get up for meals, and that's about it. They're not interested in participating in any activities. Uh, They don't wanna go outside. They don't want to uh, really participate in life. And it's really sad to see. And so schizophrenia often looks like that. Um, I would say that's a, a large majority of what many of my patients struggle with. And that can be really, really difficult. Um, there's a a pretty poor quality of life for some of those patients. And then on the other side, it's also very common for for patients to have um, auditory hallucinations. Many of them have voices that tell them to do things, whether that's telling them horrible things about themselves, telling them to uh, hurt themselves or to kill themselves, Often, people will um have auditory hallucinations that are just very derogatory in nature. and so and it, I just can't imagine what it would be like not only having voices they're not constant necessarily, although for some people they happen most of the time. They kind of come and go. they tend to be worsened by stress and It's very distracting. And so sometimes those voices will tell them to hurt or kill other people. Um, For some patients, that's how they ended up in the hospital. Their voices were telling them not to trust somebody, that somebody was going to kill them, and so they needed to kill them first. That's a very, very common uh, reason for many of our patients to commit murder. And it's gotta be very, very scary to experience that. And like I mentioned, there's also the attention difficulties because if these voices are going off, even not all the time, but occasionally, and you're trying to have a conversation with another person, it's really difficult to concentrate. So there's a lot, a lot to say about schizophrenia. I could I could talk about this just about all day long. Um, But generally, when people talk about schizophrenia, they think of the auditory hallucinations. Delusions are also another very common part of schizophrenia, and there are all sorts of delusions. I mentioned an example a minute ago about paranoid delusions, that somebody may be afraid that somebody is watching them, following them, um, out to get them for some reason. Often these the source of the paranoia tends to be folks in authority and so a lot of patients are very afraid of people from from law enforcement they're afraid of the FBI the CIA Uh, They're afraid of Navy SEALs. And so a lot of their delusions manifest, especially with police. And so it can be very, very frightening for somebody who's already having these paranoid beliefs. Maybe they're also using substances and uh, somebody calls the police on them. Let's say they're homeless, hanging out around a store. Somebody calls the police and law enforcement comes around them. Well, if that's the source of your genuine fear that's worsened again by the drug use or alcohol use um, that can become a very violent situation very quickly. And so I've just noticed, especially when I did um, incompetent to stand trial work that a lot of folks would come in with resisting a peace officer or assault against a police officer. and it's mostly because they got into these situations where the the police were surrounding them and they were terrified and thought that these people were going to kill them that they were there they'd finally been cornered and so often the patients feel like they are fighting for their lives and that's a really got to be a really scary place to be once they once the fog lifts so to speak and they come out of that they usually realize that what they did was wrong they realize that de- the delusion is, was false. Um, but for other people, their delusions persist. And I've had patients who have delusions that will never go away. And the frustrating part for treatment providers is that of all of the symptoms of schizophrenia, delusions are the hardest to treat with medication. And often the medications don't make any changes to the delusions themselves. And that can be really frustrating and hard. Uh, And so we might have people who believe they are uh, religious figures, that they are Jesus, that they're God, that they're Muhammad, that they're whoever. And it's really difficult to change that belief. Now, sometimes people do kind of snap out of it and they're able to reality test and say, okay, I'm probably not this person that I think I am. But other times, the delusion is so fixed, meaning that it's so embedded in their everyday thinking in their everyday life that they just can't get rid of it. Um, I'm thinking of one patient I have who is convinced that he invented, um, that he invented something really significant and he cannot be persuaded otherwise. And, and so in talking to this person it's very difficult to have a, a conversation because it's not based in reality. And I'm I'm noticing, you may notice too, that I'm trying to be very general about the way that I'm speaking about this because um, obviously if there's HIPAA concerns and I don't want to make sure that I'm that I'm singling any particular patient out. Often there are patterns of behavior, patterns of symptoms. And so often when I'm talking about this, I can think of multiple patients across multiple hospitals that presented with this this same uh, symptom presentation. Um, Let's see, I hope that answers uh, partially the question, just to repeat the question that I got to a little while ago. Um, did the hospital specialize in or, or favor any certain types of mental illness? Not necessarily. Really, when I come back to that, it's as we learned more about mental health disorders, we were able to refine the definition of things. And so, um, we, for instance, we don't see a lot of uh, epilepsy in the hospital because uh, we do see it, but it's secondary to other disorders. Um, but nobody's being brought in simply because of epilepsy. That's a physical health issue. Um, Nobody's really brought in just for syphilis anymore. (laughs) And nobody's really brought in just for, and I should clarify this. I was going to say for developmental disorders, there are specific facilities for folks with developmental disorders and intellectual disabilities. Although we do see a few of them at the hospital. And let's see. Um overall, on the whole, when we're talking about psych hospitals today, the primary mental illnesses that we work with are schizophrenia spectrum disorders. So that includes uh, schizophrenia itself, schizoaffective disorder, which is a combination of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, and delusional disorder, which is just the delusions and no other symptoms of schizophrenia. We also do see quite a bit of bipolar one disorder. And we also see a fair amount of personality disorders. So antisocial personality, borderline personality, uh, those are the primary ones. And then, of course, we have substance abuse. Um, Although people are not committed to the hospital primarily for substance abuse or for personality disorders, um, they have to have what we used to call an axis one. So that's the main mental health disorder, something like the schizophrenia spectrum disorder or bipolar one disorder. Okay, moving on. Hopefully that answers those questions about Oregon State Hospital. Next, questions about being a psychologist at a hospital. This is from Samira. So Samira is uh, curious about what my average workday and work week look like. That's a great question. And so it really varies from treatment provider to treatment provider and the type of unit that somebody is on. So I've worked at three different state hospitals and um, my jobs were pretty similar at each place. So generally speaking, the way that I construct my day looks a little bit like this. So when I first get in, we have notes on incidents from the previous day and so i'm going to scan the logs to see if there's anything significant that i need to address if something happened on my unit that i need to talk to a patient or the patients about um when i refer to incidents uh, this might be peer-to-peer assaults. It might be peer-to-staff assaults. Mom, if you're listening, this might be a good time to turn the podcast off. So (laughs) trigger warning for my mother. Uh, (laughs) So if there's anything that I need to respond to, I might go meet with the patient and say, hey, what was going on with this? And then I make recommendations for the patient and and document what's happening. We also have what what we call treatment team meetings. Um, These are sometimes called interdisciplinary meetings interdisciplinary team meetings. And those are with patients, we usually see them about once every 90 days or so. And that's where the entire treatment team. So that includes the uh, unit psychiatrist, unit psychologist, uh, a recreation therapist, social worker, and an RN. Uh, get together and talk about the patient's treatment, their progress, um, anything that they need to work on. If there have been any incidents that the patient's been involved with, we address those. Um, We check in about what their plans are for after they leave the hospital. Um, We ask them about how their group treatment is going. And then, of course, if there are any questions that the patients have, um, we want to get those answered as well. So, one of the sort of niches that i've created for myself at my current hospital stems actually from my background as a teacher Um, i taught for about 14 years Um, i taught college writing and, and literature and so running groups and group treatment is really my area of specialty i run about six hours of groups per week and i have several different groups that i just really really enjoy so every psychologist has their own little flair we have uh, in my hospital we have a psychologist who specializes in doing tai chi groups we had somebody who did yoga groups for patients. We have a psychologist who offers animal assisted therapy. Uh, we have other specialties that are similar to that. And so we like to have some, we like to have staff members bring their individual strengths and gifts, if you will, to the groups. So my specialty in the sort of like I said, the niche that I've made for myself is I'm now known as the essential oils lady. (laughs) And so I have a relaxation group that I run on my unit. It is very well attended. The guys love it. And I bring an essential oils kit and kind of waft each of the oils in front of their nose. And you would be so surprised how sensory deprived these guys are, and that goes for incarcerated folks as well, just something as simple as smelling orange essential oil can bring back a flood of memories about running through the orange groves or drinking Sunny D on a sunny day. And so I encourage them to really, you know, as they're smelling everything, get a sense of what memories pop up for them. Is there something that this reminds you of? Do you feel a certain way when you smell this? And some of them are so sensory deprived they can't even name the smell. You know, something basic like lemon. They're like, "Oh, I recognize the smell, but I can't tell you what it is." And so, just bringing that in and having an extra sensory experience for them can be really, really powerful. Um, We use that uh, for relaxation, as I mentioned, and then. Um, I put the little oils on a, on a piece of paper for them that they can, they can choose what ones they want, uh, which ones they like, and then take it back to their room. Some people put them on their pillow and make their pillow smell good. Or some people put them on their nightstand so that their room smells good. And uh, it's, it's really great. They really like that group. Um, I also have a positive psychology group. This one, this is one that I am particularly proud of. We go through different values and uh, that are positive in nature. And when I first begin this group on the unit, um, I always make sure to tell the guys you know, we spend so much time talking about what's going wrong and not nearly enough time talking about what's going right. And so, how can we look at these values and work toward these positive things um, that really make life worth living? So, for example, we talk about respect. Uh, that's what we talked about last week. Um, what is respect? What does respect look like in different situations? What does it look like? What does respect look like in prison? What does respect look like in the hospital? What does respect to your peers mean? What does respect to staff look like? And so we have these really great um, enriching conversations about these topics. Sometimes we talk about courage. What does it mean to uh, to have courage? When is it important to be courageous? Um, what makes it hard to be courageous? So we talk about those sorts of things. It's a really great group. Um, I enjoy it a lot and we make it fun. Anytime That I can get my patients talking about what's working well is a group well well spent. They spend enough time talking about their symptoms, talking about the negative thoughts they have, that it's nice to do something that's more um, uplifting. I also have a, a drug education group, which is just your, your average sort of um, substance abuse treatment group. And uh, again, I try to make it as realistic as possible, talking about the real things that are happening right now, um, what we're seeing in the community that's problematic in regard to addiction studies. Um, we talk about the fact that I mean a big topic that a lot of people are talking about is the fact that fentanyl is being cut into everyday drugs street drugs and so I want to make sure that my patients are aware of what's happening so that they don't have an accidental overdose Um, I like to tell them that their lives are important they have family members who love them and and they have treatment team members who care about them and want them to succeed So, in addition to the groups, um, I also am writing risk assessments for most of my day. So, every patient needs a suicide risk evaluation and a violence risk assessment. And so, I'm determining what their risk for both are, what might increase their chances of uh, engaging in self-harming behavior or um, attempting suicide, what might increase their aggression levels. So whether they're more likely to yell at somebody or punch somebody in the face or, you know, kick a wall or something, those are things that I assess for regularly. So every every patient needs both completed at least once a year, but often um, with many patients, they need to be updated more frequently, especially if they have recurring issues in a certain area. I also work on behavior plans. If if there's a, a patient on the unit who's displaying particularly problematic behaviors that need to be addressed, then it's my job to come up with a plan to say, um, okay, let's let's work out a way that this behavior can decrease, and then you can get what you want or what you need. Because often people are engaging in negative behaviors because they want something else or they're not getting something. Um, It feels a lot like parenting. (laughs) And so often what I've noticed with many of these patients is they didn't have good parental influences if they had any at all. And so often I feel like a lot of what I'm doing is sort of being a good care provider and saying, I see why you're doing this. It's not okay. Let's try doing something different. And that's really, really hard. (laughs) Um, Other psychologists will also do individual therapy with patients. I don't do that a lot uh, with my patients. I'm on a very busy and active unit. Um, I don't often have time for that. Um, but sometimes I will check in briefly with my patients. I usually stop by and say uh, hello and check in with the patients who are at higher risk of violence, suicide, self-harm at least once a week. So I do, and sometimes, you know, if I have extra time, if it's a particularly light uh, paperwork week, which I love when that happens, I can just go Hang out in uh, the day room, there's a, a large room with the TV and a whole bunch of chairs and tables. Sometimes I'll play uno with the guys. sometimes we'll just color. sometimes I'll work on a a crossword puzzle and bring some extra copies so they can work on it along with me. Um, i I just love checking in with them and making sure that they that they have somebody who sees them as a human because often I've noticed with many of these patients, they get overlooked so frequently and they're often infantilized um and so many of them just want a genuine human connection someone who sees them as being a person and not just a felon not just someone with schizophrenia not someone with um a substance use disorder and so they want to be seen for who they really are they all have strengths, they all have skills, Um, some of them more so than others, but you know, they're all, um, I won't say they're all fun to be around, but um, there are some that I genuinely enjoy spending time with. All right, Uh, Samira's next question is a really good one and (laughs) is a very difficult one to answer. How do you protect your own mental health? Very, very, very good question. There are a number of ways. <laughs> um, one just stems from trying to be professional in my interactions with my patients. And I tend to get pretty emotionally involved, but having a little bit of distance is also very healthy. And reminding myself that, you know, these are not my friends, um, these are my patients. And um, I'm not there to be their friend. That's one way that I protect my my mental health by providing that buffer of just reminding myself that you know, I'm here to do a job. Um, these are my patients, but I do like to be as warm and friendly as I can be within the confines of of being professional. Um, also, it may come as no surprise that some of the stories that I hear about the crimes that are committed are particularly heinous. There are some that I just, I cannot get out of my brain. They will probably forever be in my brain um, because of how horrific they are. And for that, I have to sort of compartmentalize in my mind and recognize that when I walk out the door, I have to leave work at work. And my home space needs to be my home space. So I try not to bring any of my work home with me. Um, I try not to, you know, think about what my patients are doing or what it, what is happening at work uh, when I'm not at work. And that's one way to separate myself from that. It's easier said than done because often there are little things, you know, somebody makes a comment on my way out the door and it sticks with with me, but I just have to sort of force myself to, uh, to separate from that and say that, you know, home is my safe place away from work. And that's one way that I take care of my my mental health. Um, another way is by doing my own therapy. And I recommend that if for any, I mean, really anybody, um, but especially for mental health workers, uh, if mental health workers are not in their own therapy, they really should be. Because, as sort of the old adage goes, you know, when you're on the airplane, you have to put your own oxygen mask on before helping others. If we're not taking care of ourselves and taking care of our own mental health, we may not have the bandwidth to help other patients. And that becomes increasingly, increasingly important. Um, It's also, I mean, other ways that I protect my own mental health are by making sure that I'm engaging in activities that I enjoy. And that's you know, that seems really simple, but it's so important. Um, even little, it doesn't have to be like a, a huge trip to, you know, Bali or something, but little, little things to bring a little bit of joy in, in my everyday life are wonderful. And so sometimes, or to make things a little bit easier, um, anything I can do to help myself out is a means of protecting my own mental health. So hopefully that answers that question. Um, She also asks, am I finding the experience of being a psychologist at a state hospital, what I had hoped? Yeah. (laughs) Um, I really love my job and my job is very hard. And so both can exist at the same time. Um, I, I really appreciate that we don't have to live in this either or, you know, it's either the best job I've ever had or it is hard and it sucks, right? <laughs> I have a really great job that I really enjoy and it is a very hard job. It takes a lot out of me. Um, I enjoy working with my patients. I enjoy running groups. It can I get very tired by the end of the day. And I think that's pretty consistent with what a lot of folks have experienced um, who work in in state hospitals. Uh, Essentially how I see my job at the hospital is I just want to be the they have somebody for their medications, they have somebody to help them with their plans, they have someone to help them have fun. I want to help them sort of connect to themselves. And so What is it that they are uh, missing? What is it that they're longing for? What is it that they are hoping life will give to them? And often more, more often than not, I should say, they're very reasonable things. They want to feel safe. They want to have a good place to live. They want to have a family and they want a lot of the same things that most of us want and you know at the end of the day it's my job to tell them like you can do it and it's going to be a challenge i like to instill a lot of reality in the most gentle way that i can because often i have a lot of patients who say oh i want to you know when i get out i want to buy a house and i'm thinking that's a terrific goal and it's going to be very very hard (laughs) um let's start first with getting you housing after you get out of here right somewhere where you can live and get back on your feet you can uh, remember what it's like to live back in society again some of them have been down for years and the world has changed a lot especially since covid you know, they they might have to work from a kind of a menial job and and work their way up and up and then, you know, reinforcing the idea that their goals are possible, but they're going to have to go one step at a time. And for a lot of them, they just want, I sort of feel like I'm talking about myself right now too. <laughs> um, they want those big lofty goals, but they want them right now, right? When really it's a process, it's a step-by-step um process to get there. And that's hard for a lot of people who've been locked up for so long. They just they've been denied life for or denied freedom for so long that they just want to get out there and make everything happen. <laughs> and that's not often realistic. So circling back to the question that Samira act- actually asked, am I finding the experience what I hoped? Um yes. Uh, yes, I have. And I really, I'm glad that I enjoy my job as much as I do. I am really excited about this podcast. And uh, one of the, as I think I mentioned early on, one of the the interests I've always had is in the history of old asylums. And I'm just fascinated by how, thankfully, different <laughs> they are than today's hospitals but in some ways, you know, there's a lot of beauty in what they did. As I mentioned, I think is in episode one, they went into the Oregon State Insane Asylum with a lot of good intentions. And those good intentions went downhill very fast. So I'm really glad that this podcast gives me a chance to learn more about the history of these asylums and learn more about the stories of the pe- people who work there, the people um, who were patients there, because I see a lot of my, myself. Um, I see a lot of my coworkers. I see a lot of my patients in those stories. And in the, the next hospital that we're going to talk about, I, in a couple of hospitals that I have planned for down the road, I have a feeling that I'm going to get very emotional because the way that they treated patients was so absolutely horrific. And I imagine it happening to one of my current patients. And I just, I can't go there uh, because there's so much that used to be done that I'm so glad is no longer done. And I'm also curious about, you know, years from now, what we're going to say about the current state of mental health treatment. There's always, there are always ways to improve. There are certainly things that we're doing now that we'll look back at 20, 30, 40 years from now and say, why did we do it like that? And that's part of the reason why I end each of the episodes with the great quote from Maya Angelou, uh, do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, do better. And that's where I feel like we've sort of hopefully (laughs) arrived at the space where we're recognizing there's so much we don't know about mental health and about mental health treatment. Even a disorder like schizophrenia, there's so much we have to learn about Um, how it affects our brain and where it comes from and why some people get it, and why other people don't get it. And I hope that we as mental health practitioners are approaching this with a sense of humility and a sense of openness to seeing what could be, you know, what are new treatments that we can work with? What's a way that we can do this better? What's a way that we can have better outcomes, um, you know, more success with our patients, whatever success looks like. And there's just so much that I'm excited about in the field of psychology and the field of psychiatry, even though I'm only tangentially related to that. Um, there's so much coming up that I'm looking forward to. I'm really excited by the new um the new folks who are coming into the field who are, Eager to learn, who are eager to work with patients, and there's, I, I have a lot of hope for the future of mental health treatment, and I'm excited to be part of it. So, um, that's the end of all the questions that we have. This sort of feels like a little tangential, um, <laughs> just kind of rambling, I guess. So this is if if you're brand new to the podcast. This is not the traditional format of the podcast. Usually I have more of a scripted uh, approach to one particular hospital. So um, I hope that you enjoy just a little bit of a a breather between, um, between hospitals and between episodes and let me know. Let me know if there's something that you want to learn more about. I can talk about this stuff forever. Uh, Especially the stuff I'm really interested in. I'm really fascinated with schizophrenia. I'm really fascinated with bipolar disorder. Um, I will give a quick shout out to um, next Saturday, which is February the 11th, I believe. Um, I will be interviewed on a podcast called Hot Topics, available on all the platforms. And um, we'll be talking more about schizophrenia. And the following Saturday, which I believe is the 18th, I'm going to be interviewed again on Hot Topics uh, about bipolar disorder. So if you'd like to hear more in sort of a more organized, coherent way, please feel free to go find that podcast and uh, tune in. It'll be at 9.45, both Saturday mornings, or you can catch it later um, on YouTube, I believe. So I'll have more details coming out about that soon. Uh, Just a side note, I do have a Facebook page. If you're interested in getting involved with the Facebook page, that's where I post all of my um, episode notes. I put, post pictures um, uh, from each of the episodes. I have, I'm have. i starting to have transcripts coming out for each of the episodes that also cite my sources because that's very important. If you would like to be part of that Facebook page, I have unfortunately made it hidden and private. <laughs> I didn't intend to do that, but uh, I thought I could change it and couldn't. But if you're interested in joining that pod- that Facebook page, excuse me. Please send me an email at behindthewallpodcast at gmail.com and request an invitation. I'll be happy to send one to you. I would love to see that group get bigger and bigger. Um, Special thanks this week to Michaela and Samira for for inviting people to that page. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thank you. If you're a new listener, I encourage you to go back and listen to the series on Oregon State Hospital. Tell me what you think. Do you have stories from the hospital? Do you know somebody who worked there? Did you work there? Uh, Do you know somebody who was committed there? Maybe you know something creepy about the tunnels, or maybe you have a story that you want to share. If you do, send me an email, behindthewallspodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear it. Um I'm also on Instagram behind the walls Pod and trying to figure out TikTok, um, like twenty years too old for the average demographic. Uh, I'm at dr Sarah eileen e i l e n. So if you want to check that out, feel free. Um thank you so much for listening to this special episode. Like I said, this will not be the norm, but I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have. And remember, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Until next time. Thank you so much for listening to Behind the Walls of the World Psychiatric Hospitals. Once again, I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Gallup. Cover image is by Christopher Payne. Check out my website at behindthewallspodcast.buzzsprout.com. Follow the podcast and learn more on Facebook at Behind the Walls Podcast and Instagram at Behind the Walls Pod. For questions or recommendations, email me at behindthewallspodcast at gmail.com. You can find new episodes every Monday on Amazon Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find and listen to the show, and I would be so grateful. Please stay tuned for more episodes of Behind the Walls of the World Psychiatric Hospitals. Until next time.